Jasmine, do you want to get us started? Yeah, of course I'd love to. Um, so hello, welcome everyone um, to the very first episode, if you will, of The Working Feminist. The Working Feminist is an interview series aiming to highlight the various ways in which young advocates can incorporate their advocacy into their careers, whether that be through working directly in a position centered around women's rights or integrating feminist values into more traditional careers, this project aims to educate and inspire the inclusion of feminism in the professional world. And so our very first guest for the first episode of this series is Professor Rachel Bernhard, who is a professor of political science over at UC Davis. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me on. Perfect. Um, so in order to explain why we chose Professor Bernhard as our first guest, we wanted to introduce ourselves as well too. So my name is Shruti Adusamili. Jasmine and I both work with Lucky Love, which is the organization through which we're hosting this interview. And I actually took Professor Bernhardt's Women in Politics class last year at UC Davis, and I really enjoyed that class. So I knew that she would be a perfect fit for the series. Um, and my introduction to Professor Bernhardt was last year, I was one of her research assistants working on a project where we looked at trends with gender and wealth in Congress. Yeah, so beyond our personal connection to Professor Bernhard, the reason why we wanted to interview her first is because within political science in an academic setting, there are a lot of different directions in which you can go with a focus. And we thought it was particularly interesting that Professor Bernhard decided to focus on gender and the role of intersectional identity in politics, since the goal of this interview is to kind of talk about how um, young advocates like ourselves can incorporate feminism and their advocacy for equal rights into their more professional lives or traditional careers. So since Professor Bernhard um, did that successfully, we wanted to start off by asking you, in your studies of political science, what led you to work in gender and intersectional identity specifically? It's a great question. Um, I think that I got interested originally because political science is such a sort of white male dominated space. And so there either wasn't a lot of work on these topics or what work there was seemed to be sort of saying, oh, it's fine. We're in this kind of like post-gender, post-racial society. And that just really did not map on to any of my own personal experiences. Um, there, there was no uh, sort of sense that I had coming into political science that we lived in this post-gender, post-racial world. And if you look at a lot of other fields like psychology or economics or sociology, they also document these big biases and um, sort of inequities in uh, the way people are treated. And I thought it would be really weird if American politics were like the one post-gender, post-racial part of our society that just kind of strained my, my belief um, and my imagination. And so um, I decided to focus in on these topics as a way of maybe um, uh, sort of proving these ideas wrong, maybe too strong of a way of saying it, but at least trying to um, bring evidence to bear on these problems so that I could say, okay, even in the case of, so Jasmine mentioned this, this um, project on wealth and gender in Congress, we actually find that the women in Congress are a lot wealthier than men on average. And so it'd be really easy in a sort of simplistic mindset to say, oh, like women must be better off in American society than if they're 
wealthier in Congress, but actually this creates this sort of puzzle, right? Like why would these women be wealthier when they aren't actually wealthier in Congress in general? Um, and that I think is where it starts to get really interesting because you see some of these things that um, look sort of like neutral or favorable to women outcomes that are actually the product of this experience discrimination of women having to overcome these barriers by bringing more resources to bear by um, obtaining, you know, other sorts of support, uh, building networks, etc, in order to enable them to access power. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And um, I have never regretted uh, studying this topic because um, it's a fantastic group of scholars who work on this stuff. And it's a fantastic group of students that I get to work with, as you all can see from uh, our great host today. I think the thing that you said about, um, you know, the studies that you're doing actually confirming some of your suspicions about the inequities that women face in politics is really interesting because something that I've been seeing a lot, at least on the internet, is that whenever somebody points out um, something that they feel like is an inequity, like, oh, women aren't in office for this reason, or even in like a more social level, uh, people will tend to explain it away in every direction. And they'll try to blame it on everything but sexism or misogyny. So it's really exciting to have someone like you whose whole thing is to actually confirm these suspicions and explain uh, what's going on so that we can work towards getting rid of these issues. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy about my work. It creates this sort of funny balance where when I talk to regular folks, my, my book project, for instance, is on appearance-based discrimination. So how do we judge political candidates, for instance, by things like the color of their skin, their gender, their age, how attractive they are, things like that. Um, when I say this to people who aren't in academia, they're like, oh yeah, people are super judgy about things like this. There are you know, tons of biases and issues along these lines. But because nobody has sort of looked into it and, and deeply investigated these topics, we don't really have the evidence to um, sort of match up with those suspicions uh, that we might have, as you're saying. And so um, I think a lot of the work I do is probably like common sense or at least old news for a lot of people in you know, the general public. Um, and yet at the same time, we need to also document that um, for scholars because that's what they take seriously. Right, right. Like you're mentioning, sometimes it's it's almost like you're the only voice bringing up these issues in a lot of rooms. And we were, Shruti and I were talking about how oftentimes, particularly in academic settings, when women bring up feminist ideas, they're often like quickly labeled as, you know, the radical angry feminist. I know that throughout high school, that was definitely my experience, you know, bringing up the feminist lens to like every possible context. Um, and I'm sure that like many people in this audience also resonate with that experience. So in your career, how have you navigated that like crazy feminist stereotype? Yeah, um, this is totally a thing. Um, and I think it, it adds up the more of these kind of historically marginalized identities you have, right? So like I have certain privileges as a white woman, for instance, that other people are not going to have as a woman of color, for instance, or a woman who's a first gen scholar, like as you sort of stack these things up, it becomes harder and harder to be taken seriously, to be treated as an equally knowledgeable professional. Um, so there are a couple of 
of tactics that I have that I guess I would say like work for me, but I encourage you all to take them with appropriate grains of salt for your own experiences because they may not exactly match my lived experiences. So sort of keep what's interesting, throw out anything where you're like, yeah, no, that would not work for me. Um, so one thing I do, um, as you all may have sort of gotten the sense of from my initial answers to the questions is I like to show up with receipts, right? You know, I'm gonna bring data to bear. I'm gonna do the most uh, sort of rigorous data collection and analysis and writing that I could possibly do. Um, and that's sort of fitting with that um, saying that many of you all may have encountered like, you know, women or black folks or whoever have to do twice as much to get half as far, like I am gonna do the twice as much to be taken seriously. Is that fair? No, but do I regret it? Also no, because I want to do the best possible scholarship on these groups. And that means bringing my A game. Um, so I think that's, you know, the sort of um, first and probably most like time consuming or most like heavily relied upon strategy that I have. It's something that may be familiar to a lot of you who may feel like you've got to overachieve in your classes, sports teams, extracurriculars, whatever it is you may be doing in order to be taken seriously or seen as the best. Um, it is a time honored strategy for I think a lot of folks who are coming from one or more historically marginalized backgrounds. Um, unfortunately, it's still a thing and still works. Um, the other that I have that relates specifically to, I think the trope of like the angry feminist, um, which uh, Jasmine sort of alluded to, or like, you know, when you start saying these things, somebody thinks, oh, you're, you know, this bra burning feminazi kind of person. Um, and the strategy that I use in some of these situations is um, to kind of play dumb. And the, the reason that I do that is that often people make these sort of marginalizing comments or, or microaggressions. And then they say something like, oh, that was just a joke or like, you know, I didn't mean for that to be taken seriously. And so my strategy in those situations is to just kind of be like, oh, I haven't heard that, you know, before, like, is that a thing? Like, you know, did, did people think that women are angry? And, and like, of course I know all about this. I read <laughs> about this on a daily basis. Um, but it kind of puts the onus on the other person to try and explain like why they thought this was funny or why they thought that that was an okay comment. And it usually makes them look really stupid. Whereas I get to maintain my kind of, you know, polite veneer of like, oh, like that's an interesting idea that you think black women are angry. Is that something that you experienced growing up? And, you know, and they're like, no, of course, like they never have a good answer for this sort of thing. Um, and I, I hope, I, I think, you know, as I sort of move up in my career and have more um, kind of power, access to power to more directly confront some of these people. And there are, of course, issues like sexual harassment, for instance, like you can't confront something like that just by playing dumb, right? Um, you're going to have to take a very different approach to, to that sort of behavior. Um, so I don't think this works for all situations, but I think that kind of like sniping or undercutting or making fun of are really common ways that people experience, again, anti-feminist, sexist, racist, whatever kinds of behaviors in a professional environment. And so um, in those situations, I often find it helpful to just be like, oh, 
oh, so you think women are bitches? Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> um, so your mileage may vary, um, but I think those are, are two of the tactics that, that I commonly use, what I call kind of the bringing the receipt strategy and the, the playing down strategy when people are being kind of actively hostile. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. That's amazing advice. Um, yeah, so switching gears just a little bit, um, Shruti and I were also kind of talking about how, or at least in my experience, and I was like thinking about what to study in college, I explored the idea of studying political science, and one of like the hurdles that I kind of ran into, it, I was thinking like, hmm, would it be kind of depressing to just like spend my career or my academic career, like just researching like all the ways in which, to be blunt, in which like society oppresses women I was like would that ever kind of turn into like a dark hole like I don't know what that would do for my mental health <laughs> um and so I guess my question for you then is in your career have you ever kind of felt like the discovery of like the various mechanisms by which society harms women like like how it impacts the low rate of women running for office like have you ever felt like that's depressing or have you felt like it's more eye-opening good question um I think this can depend a lot on what sort of work you're doing related to gender, for instance. So um, for a lot of my projects, the stuff I'm studying isn't the really like heavy, emotionally heavy stuff. So a lot of it focuses on women candidates and women in elections and um, mostly American politics. And so in those contexts, there's a lot of inequality, but there is not necessarily a lot of trauma. And it's very different than if I were, for instance, studying sexual violence during wartime, which is something that a number of my colleagues who also do feminist research work on. It, navigating that sort of work, I think does take both training and um, a temperament that allows you to kind of compartmentalize um, those sorts of topics. and when I was trying to think about like what I might be interested in specializing in in grad school, um, working on those topics like violence against women was something that I was very interested in, but I did ultimately conclude as, as you sort of suggested that this was not something that I felt like I could really do day in and day out and still have the kind of mentally and emotionally healthy balance that I needed. Um, and that's okay. That's the same way that like, you know, many of us think that the work that doctors do is valuable, but we don't love blood. And, you know, if we were left to ourselves to try and conduct surgery, like we would just faint and fall on the floor and not do the patient any good either. Right. So it doesn't mean that um, you think it's un it sort of not valuable. It's just a matter of trying to match like what are my skills and abilities and how can I apply those to topics that I care about? Um, it doesn't mean that everybody has to do the exact same kind of work. Um, for the work uh, that I do, um, again, most of which tends to not focus on violence against women, although I, I do have one project uh, that is working on that um, kind of globally. Um, a lot of it, I think, um, I actually find a satisfaction um, when I document those things because it feels um, validating and that it kind of undoes some of what I think is the gaslighting of just saying like, no, everything is equal or like it's fine. Or if you just lean in, it's all okay. Um, 
And so saying like, no, like this still actually doesn't work out well for a lot of women or like maybe it works out in some women's favor because they're white or they're wealthy or something. Like, although the facts in and of themselves are depressing at the same time, I feel like that this accurately reflects the lived experiences of you know, the women that I work with or the women in my family or the women who I talk with. Um, and so I feel like there is power in documenting those things, even if in and of itself, it's depressing. <laughs> I have a, a sort of group thread with a few friends who also do work on like gender and race and sexual orientation and stuff like that. And we always joke about how when you find something really horrible, you're kind of simultaneously excited and upset. Like you're like, I'm pissed that this problem is like just as bad as I always thought it was, but I'm also excited that like I can finally sort of prove this and like be taken seriously in proving this. Because otherwise when you say things like, oh, it's not equal or women aren't treated equally, there's always gonna be a dude bro in the background who's like, well, but what's the evidence for that? Or like, can you show me how this works? And I get to be the person who's like, yes, I can actually show you how this works. I can actually bring the receipts. Um, so that that bit I think is satisfying and kind of helps um, helps me feel. And and um, some of my work is is working directly with women who are participating in candidate trainings and who are considering running for office. And my experience talking with them about my research as well is that most of them tend to find it really validating as well because they feel gaslit all the time by people saying, oh, you just need to lean in, you just need to run, like, you know, it's not so bad out there. And then they're like, wait, I'm like getting sexually harassed by party leadership. Like it does feel like it's pretty bad out there, but everyone's telling me that it should be fine. So is it just me? Am I doing something wrong? Was I not being professional and saying like, no, this happens to a lot of people. And, you know, with any luck for some projects, at least I can say, here are things that you can do, you know, or um, just acknowledging the reality of it feels freeing for a lot of people, um, then they feel like that allows them to focus on figuring out what they want to do for themselves rather than just trying to prove that this thing is actually happening. So sort of bouncing off of the answer you just gave, you mentioned that um, one nice part about this career is that you get to bring the receipts or you get to confirm a lot of those suspicions. And so when Jasmine and I were doing a little bit of research on your work, we saw that on your website, you saw that um, there are still a lot of big questions to answer about how gender matters in politics. So we were wondering, what do you feel is the most unanswered or overlooked question in this field? And then also kind of how does that tie into some of the discoveries that you yourself have made and that you feel particularly proud of? Yeah, thank you. Um, the I think for me, what has been the big driving question of the last several years and that I think um, I will continue on for some time is thinking about not just how many women are in office, which is the classic thing that um, so many people and so many organizations focus on, right? They talk about things like the year of the woman or like how many representatives are in office while well, Rwanda has the highest number of women legislators in the world. And that must mean like things are really great for women in Rwanda. Um, 
And this focus on how many, I think, really distracts us from asking the question, what kinds of women are able to be successful in politics? And when we say things like what kinds, we can mean sort of big things like, you know, what racial or ethnic backgrounds do these women come from? What are their religious affiliations or sexual orientations? Two more nuanced questions, like I mentioned, um, my work on um, appearance-based discrimination against candidates. And one of the things that I find is that although people report on average that they're just as willing to vote for a woman as they're willing to vote for a man, when you actually look at which women they vote for, they're much more likely to vote for young and conventionally attractive women than older women. So even though it looks even on average, there's an imbalance, like a woman who is really sort of classically beautiful like Kamala Harris is gonna have a very different experience than a woman who is not considered sort of conventionally attractive by society's standards. That's still a real thing. And that means that certain kinds of women are going to be able to advance their careers. Now that doesn't make them bad people in and of themselves, right? It's a way of overcoming a particular set of barriers or marginalizations. Um, so it doesn't reflect, I think, on the candidates at all, but rather on the biases that society still has. Um, and so kind of understanding, like, how does that work? Does that play out differently for, you know, women of color or poor women or mothers or women who are the breadwinners in their families is the kind of um, question that I am really interested in answering these days. And I think, um, Recently, one of the, the projects that I'm sort of proudest of um, was one that was looking at um, these women who are um, part of these candidate trainings um, and seeing who was able to go on to run for office and who wasn't. And one of the things that we documented from these trainings is that the sort of women who were able to go on and run for office were um, much less likely to be moms and much more likely um, to have a partner who was making most of the family's income. So women who were breadwinners, who were making the lion's share of their family's income, were less likely to be able to run. And both of these kind of make sense, right? If you have kids, that's a big obligation on your time and energy. If you are the person who's paying all of your family's bills, that's a big obligation on your time and energy. Those don't allow you to get into politics so easily, right? Um, and I, I was really proud of um, this work, both because um, it reflected years of work of, of interviewing and talking to these women and trying to understand their backgrounds and where they came from, um, but also because this was a paper that I had been told like was not important enough for political science, that it was too kind of niche or narrowly focused in a way and wouldn't be of interest to a general audience. And we ended up publishing the paper in the top journal in political science. And I think that we were able to do that because the quality of the work was there and because um, we were able to kind of force people to realize like, you know, when we're talking about women who are moms and women who are breadwinners, we're talking about most of the women in the United States. Like this is not a small group of people, this is not niche. We're talking about everybody here. And we're also talking about, you know, what that means in terms of division of labor in primarily heterosexual families, right? This looks really different for same-sex couples 
including same-sex couples with kids than it does for heterosexual couples. Um, and uh, I'm just really proud that that all of that work and the time that candidates and this organization that we partnered with took to um, get us this data and, and share these things. I mean, it's, you can imagine um, if you're running an organization, it's really scary to like turn over a lot of your data to outside researchers and have them poke through it all looking for like, you know, are there like hidden biases or something? Um, and so I think, you know, these, these women were really brave. This organization was really brave um, and very transparent in opening up to us. And um, we, uh, my co-authors and I refused to kind of back down and say like, oh, I guess this is just like a niche paper that we'll send to a niche journal. And it took a long time. Um, I think the paper was about seven years old <laughs> when it finally got published. Um, so older than some of my co-authors' kids. Um, but the persistence paid off and, and I'm really proud that it did. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought that specific uh, discovery up because I think that was one of my favorite parts of the class that I took with you. And this kind of creates a follow-up question for me where you mentioned that this is an issue that a lot of women have, right? Like most of the women in this country have children or have these other familial obligations. And I was wondering if, you've thought of any solutions to this, right? Because it's not even necessarily an issue because what it really stem, stems from is, okay, women are more hesitant to run for office and put their entire family through that kind of burden because they're just more compassionate. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it becomes an issue uh, because the consequence is that they don't run for office. And the larger consequence of that is that we just don't have women representing other women in office. Um, so that's just something I struggled with where I was like, okay, this is the reason, but it's not necessarily a problem inherently. It's just the consequence of it. So I was just curious to hear if uh, you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I always try and think about like, is there something we can do about this? Because if not, I'm just like churning out depressing papers that feel sort of hopeless, right? Um, I think on this particular topic, there are a few things that could be done from sort of big structural changes to um, kind of things that individual women might be able to think about or do differently. So on the big structural change side of things, um, I think campaign finance reform would be a really important thing for the US to do. Um, one of the big time sucks of running for office um, in the US at least is how long campaigns go on for and how expensive they are. So in places like Canada, for instance, they have limits on how soon before the election you can start campaigning. So for something like city council, for instance, the campaigns can only start two months before the election. So there's none of this like two years where, you know, Hillary Clinton has to traverse the entire United States, you know, over and over again in order to be taken seriously as a candidate. Like even their big positions like prime minister, for instance, I think is three or four months um, before the election, you can start campaigning. And that understandably really cuts down on the cost of the campaign, the amount of time that's involved. So if you can imagine, uh, again, this is still a luxury that is going to be more possible for families and people that are well off. But 
you can imagine that it might be possible for some organizations to take a leave of absence for three months, but you sure can't take a leave of absence for two years, right? That's a non-starter. Um, again, that's gonna be very different for somebody who's in a white collar job than somebody who is say, you know, working retail or something. Um, there's still gonna be some barriers there, but it makes it more possible, I think, if we do these kinds of campaign reform laws that are meant to reduce it. And honestly, I think like, <laughs> I can only speak for myself personally as a voter, but like, I think we would all benefit from not having to live with like two years of campaigns and campaign mailers and robocalls and everything. Like, it's just crazy making. Um, and I don't know why we do it. We could have better lives, <laughs> less expensive campaigns, et cetera. Um, but of course, there's a lot of um, pushback against that because the people who are currently in office got there by being people who are good at doing these sorts of campaigns. And so they're afraid if we change the laws, then it might make it easier for someone to replace them, right? Um, so it's the sort of thing that would probably make everyone um, better off, but that incumbents are really reluctant to support. Um, there are some more specific things um, that I think could be done um, and some laws uh, that are being passed along these lines, laws to allow candidates to um, allocate campaign funds to things like childcare expenses or tuition expenses. Um, right now, for instance, you can write off lots of things like your travel expenses, but you can't write off childcare expenses. And so that is gradually changing. That is an effort that is mostly being led, unsurprisingly, by women who are moms who are running for office. We're like, what now? Like, you can pay for my first class travel from California to DC, but you can't pay for me to have a babysitter for the event. Like, this is nuts. Um, so there's some progress on that front. Um, on a smaller scale level, one of the things that um, when I met with this organization after we had written up our report um, was to talk about ways to keep women involved in politics and building experience when they don't have all of this time um, and, and sort of flexibility of schedule available. So one thing that um, I've encouraged them to do and they, they have really picked up on is to encourage women to participate in appointive offices. So these are things like party positions or commissions. If you've heard of something like um, a commission on the status of women or a commission on water and energy, things like that are um, very sort of political and policy intensive positions that allow women to build their political networks and expertise and make them stronger candidates for when they can actually run to elective office, but that are much less time um, intensive than these bigger races. So uh, California Commission on the Status of Women might meet once a month for one evening. That's probably doable for a lot of moms and breadwinners. It's maybe not doable to do the same thing in addition to uh, you know, a full-time job and holding another full-time political office as well. Um, so uh, I think thinking of these things as like, let's get women in the pipeline, getting experience, um, building their qualifications and networks is gonna put them in a good position for later on, should they decide, okay, now I'm really ready to run. And you know, now I have a partner who is able to cover more of our expenses or now my kids are older and I don't need to be 
you know, home with them or picking them up from school all the time or something. Um, I, I hope a combination of those sort of like small level changes and big structural changes will allow us to keep chipping away at this political gender inequality. Yeah, wow, that's really fascinating. It's good to hear that there's like some solutions that we can look to with these kind of big, larger than life seeming problems. Um, but switching gears just a little bit away from your work as an academic, but more so as an educator, um, we're wondering what has been your most rewarding experience as an educator of um, things like gender and intersectionality women in politics? This is hard because I'm really spoiled. Um, I have really fantastic students. Um, Shruti and Jasmine can cover their ears. I'll just say this to the rest of you. Um, I just have the most fantastic students and I've gotten to work with so many amazing people over the years. So um, it's really tough to pick one specific thing out. Um, I think broadly, you know, I'm, I'm really proud that many of my students go on to careers um, in some sort of advocacy, whether that's in law or in politics or nonprofits, you know, people go on to do things from working on civil rights law to holding office to um, working on nonprofits that work on the rights of women. Um, it's always really exciting to see my students kind of go on and, and flourish in those roles. Um, I think for me, you know, a lot of those interpersonal interactions um, and relationships are, are really the most rewarding. Um, and there's not like a really cool event or award or something that I could point to there, but um, I, I have been teaching, oh gosh, I'm trying to think when would I have started teaching. Um, I have been teaching for about um, eight years now at the, the graduate um, sort of college and, and graduate level. And um, recently, the, the first one of my RAs um, who I worked with as an undergrad got his PhD in political science, and um, that felt like kind of a big moment because um, this was somebody who, you know, I worked with at the very beginning of my career, and now he is one of my peers in the profession, and um, you know, a, a first-gen Latino man who um, came from a really working-class background in South Los Angeles and um, has really, you know, made this great life for himself and his family. And that's all his hard work. Like, I, I don't take any credit for that. I don't think it really reflects on me very much, but it's really rewarding to get to see people kind of grow and, and have these fulfilling lives. And, um, work on things that are important to them. And so I think the actual substance of, of what they're doing or where they're doing it or what issues they're working on isn't so important to me as just um, my excitement at, at getting to see young people kind of moving upward and onward. I think the thing I'm most looking forward to in my career, um, and you know, this will, this will come very soon, I think is, um, when my students are, are becoming much more famous than I am. I'm not really famous, but I mean, just in a sense of like, now I have a student who's like, you know, mayor of Oakland or something like that will be a really cool moment when I'm just like a footnote in somebody else's story. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for that. 
That's super exciting. And um, kind of in the similar direction of encouraging young people to go into advocacy and also in the spirit of this whole project, we were wondering if you have any advice for young advocates who are interested in incorporating feminism to their professional lives, uh, just like you did. Yeah, um, what a great question. So I think you can do um, feminist advocacy work in like the substance of what you're working on. So, you know, I know some of you have already worked on um, sort of nonprofit or education or health initiatives um, that are meant to advance uh, women's rights and, and standing in the world. Um, I think that's great work to do. I think um, you can also do small things interpersonally that can make a really big difference. So um, one, one person in my career who I have benefited a lot from is actually um, a queer male colleague of mine who, when I was applying for this position shared with me his um, salary and negotiation information from when he negotiated. And this was a really important and empowering thing that he did. And, and it's a small thing, but like, of course, really non-trivial in people's careers because when you are looking for work and somebody makes you a job offer, you're like so excited to get the job, but you may not have any clue what your male colleagues are being paid or you know what is normal to ask for and so and he did this without asking it was just i thought really great feminist allyship and and advocacy and so um that enabled me to make sure that i wasn't being paid less um either because someone was offering less or just because i might not know what sort of things to ask for so i think um, thinking about those kinds of actions of just like sharing information with people and enabling them to make more empowered and informed decisions can be really great feminist advocacy, even if your job is like making people's name tags for a conference, which is what I did for, you know, two summers in college. Like we can't say that that work in and of itself was like cool feminist advocacy work, um, but I think in any career that you have, you can bring those practices into your own life and make sure that um, everybody around you is able to benefit from the information and the experience that you have. Um, and, and I think that applies across a lot of different kinds of careers. Um, it would be super cool if every single one of you went on to like work on women's rights or feminist advocacy issues. Like I will absolutely love that. Um, but I, I just want to empower you to like, even should you go to work at, you know, Twitter or Chevron or, you know, wherever it may be, I think you can be a really great advocate for um, the women in your organization and, and other varieties of people who may be marginalized within your profession, which of course is, it's going to be a different list of groups, depending on where you are in the world, what profession and industry you're in, etc. So um, I'm talking about women kind of broadly here vis-a-vis -vis feminism, but we all know that there are gonna be different groups who have advantages and disadvantages um, in different settings. So the more you can be mindful of those people and, and be an ally and an advocate and share that information, I think the better off we'll all be. Perfect, thank you so much. So that was the last of the questions we had prepared for the moderated discussion, but now we can take the next 10 or 15 minutes or so to let anybody here ask questions. 
So we can do this relatively informally. You can unmute and ask, you can drop a question in the chat or you can raise your hand and we'll call on you. But if anybody has any questions relating to the series or just general things for Rachel Bernhard, um, then now is your chance. Um, I had a question. Uh, I think you spoke a little bit about um, how uh, women who are conventionally attractive um, have an easier time getting elected and you spoke a little bit about Kamal Harris. So this is something I've noticed in particular about Fox News, um, how all of the female hosts are uh, fit the Western beauty standard almost to a T, like very much blonde, blue-eyed. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little more about that since I, it's a very passing observation, but I was wondering if there's you know, research on this. Yeah, um, so I do find in my research and a couple of other people have documented that um, Republican women um, generally fit these sort of um, gender typical like conventionally attractive standards um, to a much higher degree than Democratic women do. So that's true of candidates. I haven't done a specific specific study on Fox News anchors, but part of the reason I got interested was exactly this phenomenon. Um, I have this challenge. It's it's not it does not reflect very well on me, but I like cannot tell blonde people apart. Um, and so I got sort of interested, like I was talking to someone about a Fox News anchor and I was like, wait, isn't this Gretchen? And they were like, no, that's, you know, someone else. Like, you know, you like don't even know. And I was like, these people all look genuinely identical. Like they even have the same, like, you know, I swear her hair like sort of curls in the same place as this other lady. And she wears like the same pantsuit in the same colors. And so I just, how could anyone possibly tell them apart? But Anyway, that reflects poorly on me, but uh, so this does translate into the, the research on political candidates. The Republican, if you divide the sample up into Democrats and Republicans and men and women, you see like Republican women are like two standard deviations more attractive than everyone else. It's somewhat true as well for Republican men, men like they're much more conventionally attractive than the Democratic men are. Um, the, the Democratic women are also um, rated on average as quite attractive. So I guess part of this is like maybe the Democratic men look like really sloppy or not put together. Um, but I, I do think that there um, are some like racist Western heteronormative etc kinds of beauty standards that are being applied to, you know, if you look at which specific candidates are rated as very attractive by a lot of respondents. Um, almost always they fit these, these kind of stereotypical Western beauty standards. It's very rare that, again, someone that I think we would all agree is like an extremely attractive person um, who is a woman of color or, you know, is like a black woman wearing her hair natural rather than relaxed or something like that. It's very rare that she's going to be rated as equally attractive. Um, so I, I do think it reflects those biases. Um, I think there is some of the work I'm, I'm starting to get into now is also looking at um, how these perceptions of like gender typicality and attractiveness relate to people of different sexual orientations. Like how much is this evidencing some um, heteronormative biases of like what women and men 
should look like, right? And how might that create separate challenges for people who are, for instance, queer or non-binary or, you know, just don't want to present in a kind of gender typical way. Um, this research is a little bit harder to do because of course there's no database of like who is queer and not in politics. Um, and there are very few, even the people who were out as, you know, trans or non-binary or something like that, the numbers are very small. So it's very hard to like prove in the same way that you can show that for instance, women are judged much more on their attractiveness than men are because we have lots of women, even if there are still fewer uh, women than men in office, but it's much harder to um, kind of examine some of these groups that are just so underrepresented still and where they're, for very good reasons, there's not like a list of who is gay and not in politics. Um, so I'm, I am hoping that I'll have some interesting things to say on that and that I can get at by other means, um, but that's kind of where, where the work is going next. Thank you. That's super interesting. Also, I have a follow-up if no one else has a question. <laughs> okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go. Um, so kind of in a similar vein, like if, you know, women who are, uh, or, or women who are Republican are, um, are more conventionally attractive, um, and people who aren't conventionally attractive have a harder time getting elected, do you think that women who are Republicans have an easier time getting elected. I know like I see uh, like anecdotally a lot of the women leaders I can think of like uh, Margaret Thatcher or uh, Indira Gandhi, they're both um, pretty right wing and maybe women who aren't um, aggressive are seen as weak. Uh, I was just wondering what um, thoughts you had on that. This is such a great question. Um, I would love to encourage you to become a political science professor so we can work on this together because I think this is one of the, the interesting topics that, that a lot of people are excited about right now, which is that um, it, in the US at least, there are many more Democratic women in office than Republican women in office. And um, people think um, research is starting to document that this comes from a challenge related to stereotyping, which is that women are stereotyped as being more liberal on average than men. And so for democratic women, this is generally helpful, right? They, people are gonna stereotype them to be better on these issues like education and healthcare and things that are really important to Democrats. Um, but for Republican women, it's gonna cut in the opposite direction, what's called um, in, in the sort of scholarly jargon, it's cross-pressuring them. So they look more liberal, so they have to kind of pretend, I mean, not pretend necessarily, I'm not saying this is inauthentic, but they, they have to make themselves seem even more aggressive and conservative and right-wing than an equivalent man would have to do on those policy issues because they're battling that stereotype that they're you know, liberal or, or less of a real conservative on these issues. So we think that that could be possible um, as an explanation for why, um, you know, because as you're coming through the primary system, right, like you're being evaluated first by just Republican voters or just Democratic voters. So it's harder for Republican women to get out of the primaries in the first place because they're um, dealing with this very conservative electorate who thinks that they're more liberal than they are. So they face challenges right off the get-go. 
once they make it to a general election, they actually tend to do better than Republican men on average, but it's very hard for them to get out of the primary stage in the first place. So um, we think that's what's happening there. Um, uh, as you mentioned, it is true that in some other uh, places and contexts, um, we don't see the same relationship. There are a lot of conservative women in power in Europe, for instance. Um, you know, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, but obviously Angela Merkel um, is an obvious one. Um, and now there's kind of a new generation of women prime ministers and chancellors and presidents who are more liberal. Um, so I think of Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, for instance. Um, so we can see that things are changing and my hope is that gradually we'll get like real diversity of women in office in terms of, you know, the parties and ideologies they represent, but also in terms of other things, right? Like it's mostly white women. Um, the few exceptions to that tend to come from places that are, you know, very high majority um, racially or ethnically other places. So, you know, there are a lot of women prime ministers from Africa, for instance, who are not white, but it's not really surprising that they're not white given that they're coming from heavily black as we would classify them countries. Uh, it's, you know, just still, I think, a, a world in which there are a lot of forces cutting against um, women in these contexts. And even some contexts where women seem to be making progress, I think um, it can be really shallow, shallow or superficial progress. So one of my colleagues, for instance, works on um, Mexico, which has incorporated some quotas in order to get more women in office. And what has happened is that male politicians essentially circumvent the quotas by putting forward their wives or daughters as um, politicians, as candidates for office. So we'll say something, I'm making this up here, but let's imagine that, you know, Jasmine's dad is running for office and it'll say, you know, vote for Jasmine and there will be a picture of her dad, like with a thumbs up in the background saying, you know, yes, vote for her and you know that he's the one who is really going to be pulling the strings. So again, I think that just emphasizes why it's so important for us to look beyond the numbers of how many women there are in office because the real story on the ground can be substantially different. Uh, sort of continuing this conversation on like the role of attractiveness in women running, I was kind of thinking about um, the stereotype of people that are more attractive being less intelligent, because something that I remember noticing with um, specifically Representative AOC is a lot of the discourse that was happening online amongst men was just about her physical appearance and about how they didn't think that she had a braid. Like they were just trying to pinpoint every success she had on like a different man and just like truly believe that there was nothing really more to her than her face. Um, and so in that way, it almost seems like attractiveness could also be um, a disadvantage. And I was just curious to hear if you have any findings on that. Yeah, um, such a good question. So um, I do think that this can be an example of what's called a double bind, which is like, you need to demonstrate one thing like aggressiveness or attractiveness or whatever it might be in order to be taken seriously or to make it past one barrier. And at the same time, people will sort of devalue you or your achievements because you have that thing, right? So they're gonna say, well, you know, she only got this because she's 
you know, attractive or, you know, well, she made it into office, but she's just an idiot or, you know, fun gendered language ahead, bimbo or whatever, right? Um, that, that this isn't a real achievement in a way because um, she has these characteristics. Um, in my own data, it's really hard to get at that because what I think is probably the case is that you would see something like an increasing relationship as you're more conventionally attractive in the sense, you're gonna do better and better, but then right at the sort of top of the scale, there's gonna be this downturn, right? Um, because people are not making the sort of attractiveness must be stupid inference about people in the middle of the scale. It's really just about people who are at the very top of the scale. And in any distribution, there's gonna be relatively few people who are at the top of the scale right? That's just, you know, not everyone is going to be a 10 out of 10 on whatever sort of horrible heteronormative racist framework of what attractiveness is, right? Um, so it's hard to show that statistically, but anecdotally, I think there's a lot of reason to imagine that there's something going on there and that it is um, cross-cutting. I think, again, depending on um, the race of the women, I mean, you know, I think, um, for instance, AOC is Latina, Kamala Harris is both Indian and Black, and you can see in both cases, people have sexualized them, um, you know, implied that they've only gotten to where they've gotten to because in Kamala Harris's case, she had a relationship with Willie Brown, or in AOC's case that, you know, she's just attractive and, you know, some somehow that like won her office, but um, means at the same time that she's totally unfit to um, be a thought leader in the Democratic Party. So I think um, this, is, this is a situation where it's tough to amass like, you know, quantitative evidence along these lines, but we could look at a lot of qualitative cases that seem to bear out your suspicion. All right, well, I think that wraps up all the time that we have today, but thank you so much to Professor Bernhard for being with us today. We had an absolute blast picking apart your brain. Um, we've learned so much and thank you to all of you who managed to come here today to listen. Um, we're very excited to keep interviewing people like Professor Bernhard who have managed to incorporate their advocacy into their careers. Um, and yeah, please let us know if you have any questions. You can reach out on the Lurky Love Instagram, I believe, um, or any Lurky Love form of communication. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you all. This was really a pleasure. Um, I appreciate your great questions, and I hope that you all will be in touch if you have any follow-up questions. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. All right. Take care, folks. Bye-bye.